This is Hannibal from World Class Pro Wrestling, along with the owner of World Class Pro Wrestling, Jerry the Boss Bostic, and the former owner of NWA before it was sold to Billy Corgan, Bruce Stark. So this is a very special uh, podcast today to have him on. How are you both doing? I'm great, man. Uh, really looking forward to this interview tonight. Bruce, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to be with us this week. So thank you very much. Uh, Jerry, Hannibal, my pleasure to be here. I, I want to um, thank you guys for inviting me. I'll tell you that uh, uh, since I stepped away from wrestling in about uh, 2017, I've given very few interviews. So this is like maybe the first or second one that I've given. So, yeah, we really appreciate it. I noticed that too, you know, and, and whenever uh, I had originally came up with the idea, I told Hannibal and he was all for it. And I was like, man, that would, you know, that'd be a great interview. It's not often that you get to sit down with somebody that owned, you know, such a prestigious company as the NWA with so much wrestling history. Oh, I can't even wait to get into this. So why, why don't you start off? Why don't you tell us how you got into wrestling in the first place? Okay. Well, um, I actually started working at the wrestling matches when I was about 12 years old to be, you know, uh, <laughs> to be honest, when I was in the sixth grade, my dad was the ring announcer for uh, championship wrestling from Florida back in the old territory days. And so I sold Cokes at the armory at the <laughs> Fort Homer Hesterly armory. I, I, in the sixth grade, I started selling Cokes. And so, um, Man, I got to see all the greats, you know, all the greatest wrestlers in the world pass through Florida. I mean, because of the great weather and, and whatnot. So um, I started out, you know, at about age 12. And I remember that um, I would finish selling my Cokes like right before the main event. And so then I would kind of like sneak down to ringside. My dad would let me kneel down next to him at ringside. And so I would see the last match right up front, right from the edge of the ring. So that was, you know, awesome, you know, memory for me. Um, With you being 12, who really, like, wrestling-wise, what wrestlers really stood out to you at that age? Oh, wow. Um, awesome question, you know, and we could talk a long time for that. But, you know, Harley Race was the world champion, back then, you know, at that time. And um, my favorite wrestler of all time was Jack Briscoe, you know, from Florida. You know, Blackwell, Oklahoma, actually, originally, but he lived in Florida. And um, he was an awesome world champion. He was, you know, the scientific, the squeaky clean NCAA, former NCAA amateur champion, you know. So he was a standout for me. Um, obviously, I was there, you know, when Dusty Rhodes made his babyface turn against Pac Song and Gary Hart. I mean, I was there for that. You know, I remember the crowd, you know, how electrifying they were. And when he first made his appearance as a babyface at the Bayfront Center of Saturday night, right after that Tuesday, when he made that turn, he walked in from a side door wearing this top hat and a <laughs> with black, you know, tuxedo jacket with long tails. And it was a standing room only crowd at the Bayfront Center. And he came walking in through the side door, man. It was amazing. You know, the people, you know, really popped. I can I can remember that. But I'll tell you this also, you know, um, Eddie Graham was the promoter in Florida. And 
he designed his territory around wrestling, around real wrestling, you know, scientific wrestling. You know, he wanted that. Um, and in fact, I can recall the first two or three matches, I was kind of like bored, you know, because it was just like two guys trading holes back and forth. You know, you were waiting for the semifinal match because, you, you know, you knew chairs were going to be involved in that match. Maybe some blood, some a storyline. You know, the, usually the first two or three matches might even have been Broadway's, you know, 15 minutes wow. of holds and stuff. But I can remember being very impressed with a couple of wrestlers that came from California to Florida. And, and they had a California wrestling style that I had never seen before. You know, they were workers, you know, and they electrified me. Those guys were uh, Rocky Johnson and Pat uh -huh. Pat pat patterson oh one of the most intelligent wrestling minds of all time when pat patterson first came to florida man i you know he just had a different wrestling style you know it was a california wrestling style you know he would he'd spend the first three or four minutes talking to the referee you know and arguing with the referee about something you know and by the time they he and his opponent touched each other five or six minutes was already gone you know? <laughs> It was just an amazing, you know, psychology-wise, just things that I had never seen before. And um, Pepper Gomez was another one who came from you know, the psychology. It's amazing to hear you talk about it because the psychology is often lost, I feel, nowadays in matches. And, you know, I think also the art of being a heel is often lost now. And so it's really cool to hear you talk about it because, you know, Pat Patterson, uh, definitely one of the most respected people you know, in my, in my mind, um, that I've actually had the time to sit down and, and talk with and, and pick his brain. And, you know, it's he awesome. was one of a kind, one of a kind. No question about that. You know, do you a, see the differences in psychology and he'll work now too. Do you see that whenever you watch the product? Absolutely. You know, and I have to tell you that, you know, I don't, I don't have as much time to, to watch the product these days as I did, you know, in, in years gone, but for sure, I think there's a lot that we're, that we've lost from the past, you know, psychology, you know, being one of them. I mean, I mean, one of the thing, one of my pet peeves, you know, and I might get in trouble by saying this, but one of my pet peeves is um, these days is you see guys that have matches with one another, you know, and they're like good, great matches, you know, and then the next day they're thanking each other on Facebook and, you know, my friend and, you know, I, you know, I know Vince McMahon, um, kind of exposed wrestling when he revealed kayfabe years ago you know to, you know, so he could get that break with the you know wrestling commissions and whatnot but um i think that in the long run that that's really damaged our profession is the loss of kayfabe you know um now everybody i mean and i'm talking about wrestling fans and just the mainstream person on the street that really doesn't know much about wrestling none of them believe that pro wrestling is real anymore you know and i think that's a shame yeah, exactly right i think that's a shame to an extent because you know back in the day not to say there's not tough guys among us right now because there really are you know um but back in the day you had guys like harley race you know who could make a believer, I mean, out of anybody. I mean, anybody that came up to him and told him that wrestling was fake, boy, they'd have a problem on their hands. Johnny Valentine, you know, uh, Wahoo McDaniel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
some of these names from the past that you just, you, they were just so tough. You just don't, I mean, it's just a different era. It's just yeah, a different I think era. a lot of it, you know, I think it's the presentation of it. It's presented so different as opposed to how it used to be. And, you know, it's like, I can still sit down and watch the old world class because to me, you know, it really, it did appear to be real. You know, you weren't going to turn it on and watch a bunch of five-star mas masterpiece technical showdowns but you were going to turn it on and watch something that you could buy into and that you could believe in. And the characters were just exactly that. They were believable characters that were out there fighting for a purpose. There was a reason they were fighting and all of it just lined up and made sense. Whereas now I feel like there's, they go from sometimes from point A to point B without ever, without ever explaining how they got there. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, you know, we're talking about psychology again, you know, and I, was having this conversation with some younger guys at wrestling school I visited, you know, a few weeks back. We were talking about, you know, psychology. Just as you mentioned, Jerry, I mean, guys would have a reason for being in the ring against one another, you know. For example, it would either be, you know, the winner of the match makes more money. So you've got that, you know, incentive to try to win the match because you want to make more money or there's a title at stake. And you've got an incentive to win that match because you want to become the new champion, you know, or there's a personal issue there, you know, where, yeah. you know, somebody slaps somebody else on TV and they're angry at one another. So there's a personal issue. So that's why there's, there's a reason, you know, for that. And, and there's also a reason why, you know, there's a baby face and a heel. I mean, not, heels not necessarily are, nasty guys with bad personalities that come down the you know aisle and you know you're a heel for a reason you know you break rules in a match for a reason you know and usually it's because the baby face is the better wrestler you know and that's where the shine comes from you know the baby face has that little shine spot during the match you know and you know it gives the heel a reason to cheat you know, yeah, the only reason he can back over is to do something dastardly to get back on top. <laughs> you know, it's like a it was a time tested formula that was never broken that is now oftentimes forgotten. It, you know, it's funny thinking of back to on a, I read something the other day and I don't know how true it is. I heard one of the ways that you really got into the business too was uh, your magic tricks. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> you know, uh, that's really an interesting story. I'll be happy to share that with you um so yeah i mean i don't know if uh, many people out there know that one of my hobbies is magic you know one of my passions is magic i've been doing magic since i was before i was in wrestling and um so my dad happened to be really good friends with eddie graham and on this particular occasion i was in this theater it was in the afternoon and i was rehearsing this magic show that i was going to present the stage magic show that I was doing and I was by myself and so I don't know three o'clock something like that my dad and Eddie Graham walk into this theater you know they'd been out doing something together they had lunch perhaps or I don't know but my dad knew that I was rehearsing this and they were in the neighborhood so they just stopped and came in so I decided to do this trick you know and um, I asked Eddie Graham I said you know, Mr. Graham, do you have a handkerchief in your pocket? So um, at that in that particular time, I mean, it was in the 70s, you know, he was one of those guys that carried a, a handkerchief in his pocket. 
So he pulls out this white handkerchief, you know, thank goodness he hadn't blown his nose on it or anything. It was clean. So he gives, <laughs> he gives me this handkerchief, you know, and so I take it back on stage and I tie a knot in the handkerchief and I start to make it float, you know, all over the stage. And the handkerchief is dancing all over the stage, you know, and finally I, ca I catch it, you know, and I take it back to Eddie Graham. And I give him the handkerchief back. You know, he's looking at it, you know, and he unties the knot and he's looking for the string or whatever it was, you know, that caused the handkerchief to dance all around the stage. He's looking at it, you know, and, you know, he was amazed. He was mystified by this trick. So he and my dad split. They take off. And my dad tells me that as soon as they get in the car, Eddie asked my dad, how does he do it? Tell me. <laughs> Tell me how it does you know, and my dad goes, Eddie, I don't know how he does it. He won't tell me, and I'm his father. And so I think at that point, something went off in Eddie Graham's head where he realized that, man, this kid, I was about 17 at the time, but I think he realized that this kid will protect a fade. And so literally a few days later, I got a phone call, and um, I started working in the wrestling office. Oh, wow. At the sport, yeah, at the sportatorium in the office. You know, and they used me as a gopher at first, you know. They would send me to the bank with deposits, and I would go pick up lunch and stuff. But, you know, Dusty Rhodes was the booker at the time, and Jerry Briscoe was the assistant booker. Gordon Soley was there, you know, on a daily basis. Um, Duke Kiyomuka, I don't know if you recognize that name, Patrick Tanaka's father. Duke Kiyomuka was there. He was, you know, all of these were like stockholders in the business. And uh, do, you, do you recognize that name by chance, Duke Kiyomuka? No, I do not. I, okay. I'm very familiar you with that. You got to research him, Gary, man. He had, like, I think the most sellouts in Houston of, like, any heel in, like, the late 60s. And he and Mr. Moto were big-time tag team partners and traveled through Texas and whatnot, but... Duke Yamuka was this Japanese wrestler that I had seen on TV, man. And he would throw salt in people's eyes and use karate. <laughs> He'd use yes. karate, you know, and stuff like that. And man, he, I remember one time, my one Sunday, I was with my mom and dad at one of the first malls they ever had when malls started coming out. And we ran into Duke Yamuka and his wife. And Duke Yamuka was dressed to the tees, kind of like Charlie Chan. You know, he had this suit on, you know, and he would bow, you know, and speak in broken English, you know, like, you know, like this Japanese wrestler. So my first day at the office, you know, working in the wrestling office, I, you know, go up, you know, I'm supposed to be there at nine o'clock and go upstairs. Here's Duke Kiyomuka, you know, sitting at the typewriter, you know, with two fingers. He's wearing this <laughs> New Japan wrestling jacket with Japanese writing on the back. He's got these big, thick glasses, a big old cigar in his mouth. He turns around to me, and in perfect English, he goes, Hello, kid. You know, welcome to the office. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, so, yeah, it was really cool, you know, being around all those types of people. Um, you know, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, you know, when you're young and you watch wrestling, you see your you know, you're, you know, the people that you really look up to, your heroes, you know, you, you've got these illusions of them, right? 
So I remember the first time, you know, we were doing TV and we'd do like two tapes and then afterwards we'd do um, promos in this hot studio with Sportatorium had no heat in the winter and no AC in the summer. You know, you'd be wet, you know, with sweat. And I remember after everybody left, you know, and all the wrestlers were doing promos and stuff like that, it was Jack Briscoe, you know, the former world heavyweight champion, you know, my, my idol, my hero, you know, and he's sitting there and he's smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, no, it can't be not Jack Briscoe smoking a cigarette. No. So that's one of the first times one of my illusions about the business was destroyed. You know, when I saw Jack Briscoe puffing away in a cigarette, you know, in between promos. But, you know, it goes back to the, to the whole suspending, you know, somebody's belief in something. Exactly. You know, once again, I mean, it's funny you tell that story because it's exactly one of the things that's broken today. And that's a perfect example of it. You know, now there is not that aura of a superstar, you know, somebody that, that you're just mystified by when you come into their presence because, you, you know, social media for all the good and bad that it does. You know, it enables you to see all these different parts of somebody's life like that that back then you couldn't see. And, you know, it made it way more mysterious, it made these people on a higher level, you know, and, and now we don't have that. So, you know, when you circle the wagons, you know, as a promoter, just like you've been in the same shoes as I have been, you know, you have to find ways to try to suspend that disbelief again in a whole new world. And, you know, it, it's hard to have that same effect that, you know, Jack Briscoe had on you then. But there has to be a way still to do it. There's a way to do it. I'm, I'm convinced that there's a way to do it. You know, I'm convinced there's a way to do it because, um, you know, and my one idea would be, um, you know, you had uh, the Attitude Era. Remember when they had the Generation X and Shawn Michaels, you know, and all those cutting edge, you know, uh, uh, you know, matches and stuff like that. You know, and then you had the Reality Era that came along. You kind of had like controversial interviews and things like that and almost like work shoot type you know inner you know promos between the boys and stuff like that well i don't know i think that there's a new era that's going to be coming to wrestling i think it's going to be the shoot era you know i i think it's the shoot era and what i mean by that is i mean there's some wrestlers in the business these days that are you know that are really tough absolutely you know, they're really tough guys, you know, that could handle themselves in a shoot versus, uh, you know, uh, or even a fight, a street fight. You know, um, I mean, it used to be that you had to be tough to be in the business years ago, you know, because they would test you. I mean, you you couldn't get in the business years ago just to, if you had a good body or if you paid, you know, money to go to a wrestling school. I mean... You had to prove you were tough. I mean, I had this conversation with Terry Funk one time, you know, and he would tell me, you know, this was back in the day when, you know, wrestling was still kayfabe and they would protect believability about it. They'd have guys come off the street, want to be wrestlers, you know, karate guys, you know, boxers, weightlifters, you know, football players, you know, even amateur wrestlers that wanted to be pro wrestlers that thought they, you know, had what it takes. And 
a lot of those, you know, it was a closed shop back in those days. I mean, if you weren't born in the business or, you know, had some sort of quality that they promoters wanted, I mean, it was very difficult for you to break in. And so what they would do is they would, you know, let them come down to the matches, you know, and give them a work, you know, tryout match. And then basically beat the crap out of them. Yeah, yeah they sure would. And, and, you know, Ole, now. Ole, Ole Anderson and Gene Anderson used to do it in the Carolinas, you know, and Bill Watts did it in Florida. And, you know, Bob Roop did it in Florida for Eddie Graham. A lot of guys, you know, Vern Gagne did it for himself in Minnesota. But what they do is they get these guys down there and they would, you know, work them out first blow them up basically, you know, have them do squats and push-ups and sit-ups and all these calisthenics to when they were, you know, tired. And then they get them on the mat and put them in the sugar hold or something and, you know, make them, you know, squeal, you know, Stu Hart had a reputation for doing that in the dungeon, you know, in Calgary, you know, come here kid, you know, let me uh, put this hold on you, you know, and he'd put a hold on you and wouldn't take it off, you know, and make you cry. Make, you did make people cry, beg, you know, please let me go. And what Terry told me is that back in the day, they would mark him, which means, I mean, if somebody came in and wanted to be a wrestler, they wouldn't just discourage them. They wouldn't just, you know, put a hold on them, a hammer lock on them and make them give up. You know, they would mark them by giving them a black eye or busting their nose so they were bleeding or whatever because they knew you know the guys in the wrestling business knew that after this happened this guy was going to go to the bar and see all of his friends at the bar and if he didn't have anything on his face it'd be very easy to, for him to say oh well you know those wrestlers they're just a bunch of fakers man and i'm not going to be part of that you know i kick their ass or whatever <laughs> right but if they went to the nightclub and they had a busted eye you know, or they had a busted nose or their arm was in a sling or something. You know, and the people said, well, what happened to you? Well, you know, I went down there and tried out for that wrestling thing. And those guys beat the crap out of me. That stuff's real. And that's how they protected the business back in the day. And and, and that's gone, I think. Um, but I think it could come back. I mean, talking about suspension of disbelief, you know, I really do think that there's a there's a shoot era that's coming, and um, I mean, Vince is the one who, you know, exposed the business back in the day. Vince is the one who's responsible for that, and everybody knows that, you know, the world champions these days they've got the belt not because they're the best wrestler in the world, but it's because the promoter decides to put the belt on them. You know, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not revealing anything right now that people don't know, but Absolutely. I don't know. I see a time coming where you're going to have some wrestlers that are real out there and that are going to say, Hey, world champion. I mean, if you really consider yourself a world champion, you know, get in the ring and prove yourself. I mean, if we want to bring back belief, I mean, I, I think that's really the way to do it, is to have some matches that either are perceived as real or, or really are real. And I think if, you know, that type of thing comes up, you're going to have issues, real issues arise between some wrestlers. You yeah, know, and some real changes a lot of things compared to where it's at. You know, I mean, you're going to have some wrestlers that are going to want to defend their profession, you know, and, you know, I think 
you know, if you have people thinking, hey, man, is this real or not? This looks like it's real to me. I think that may be the future of wrestling. And, and if I return, if I ever return to the business, I would like to align myself with sort of a, a shoot type faction like that, you know? And a lot of people have asked me, do I want to come back to wrestling? You know, it's been a while. And the answer is yes. I mean, I've got a passion for wrestling. I love wrestling. Once you're in it, it's I always say it's like the mafia. Once you're in it, you can't yeah. really get out of it. <laughs> you know, I've, I think I've kept myself in relatively decent shape, you know, in the years that I've been out of wrestling. And, you know, I've, you know, I've been contacted by a few promoters recently, you know, asking me if I'd be interested in, you know, coming back into wrestling in some capacity. I mean, it might be interesting to reprise the old Shacho gimmick that I developed in Japan. That was a lot of fun. But um, I think that that particular gimmick was um, entertaining, you know, and, uh, you know, there may be a place for that in the future. But um, I do love wrestling. Wrestling is in my blood, passionate for it. And um, I think I'll always be co uh, connected to wrestling in some, some capacity. So after the Florida stint, were you out of wrestling until the NWA came along? Actually, no. Um, I pretty much stayed in wrestling as much as I could. I had my my finger in it. So what happened was this. I, I had about a five-year run in Florida with uh, championship wrestling from Florida, worked at the office, and uh, was on the road several nights a week. But I was also pursuing my undergraduate degree at that time at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And um, got a, a Bachelor of uh, Arts degree in uh, business administration. I took that and I applied to law school. And I retired from wrestling. I retired <laughs> from wrestling in 1984 when I went to Houston for law school. And my retirement from wrestling lasted about, mm, about two weeks. <laughs> you tried we all try to retire my, my retirement lasted about two weeks you know i you know uh, let me tell you what happened to me this was so interesting so i had five years of being at the armory every tuesday night i mean every tuesday night we were at the armory you know to sell out crowds and great matches and stuff like that so when i retired from wrestling said goodbye to all the boys in tampa packed my car up, drove to Houston. Tuesday nights would roll around, and I was, like, literally having withdrawals. I'm, like, you know, thinking to myself, man, all my buddies are at the armory right now. They're all in the dressing room, and they're laughing and talking and getting ready for their match. And, you know, here I am in Houston. I'm in law school. Yeah, I'm doing what – I'm doing the right thing, but, damn it, I miss my friends. So there was this payphone – you know, this was all before cell phones, you know, but there was this payphone downstairs at the armory, and I would call this payphone on Tuesday nights and talk to all the boys and tell them how much I missed them and stuff like that. So I ended up going down to see Paul Bosch in Houston, which is where I was attending law school. And um, he didn't know who I was, but he made, you know, a couple of calls to Tampa, and he spoke to Charlie Lay. I don't know who else he spoke to. Um but found out that I had worked in the office and whatnot. So he hired me and, you know, I don't think he had to hire me, but he offered me a job because I just, I, I missed the wrestling business. And I was there and I was a law student. He gave me a part-time job working in Houston, selling tickets 
and then working at the Coliseum when they had Friday night matches about once a month. So that was awesome. I got to see a different style of promoter, a different style of promotion than Florida. That's you know, wild, though. Eddie Graham and then Paul Bosch. It's like yeah. you're coming into wrestling through wrestling royalty in a lot of ways. I mean, it, you know, that, it, that's awesome coming in under those two. I, you know, went to Paul Bosch's house and swam in his pool with him. You know, I that was an awesome memory for me. You know, I wish that I had had the maturity at the time to really pick his brain. I was intimidated by him. You know, what a you know, legend in wrestling. And I was just thankful that I was in his presence and working with him. I should have, I should have picked his brain. Like in retrospect, I mean, I saw so many great wrestlers come through Florida, like, like Ivan Koloff, like Les Thornton, Tony Charles, some of these guys, you know, Adrian Street, even who had this gimmick, you know, had this gimmick that he portrayed but he was a shooter in real life in England. He was trained in Wigan. So I pitied anybody that got in the ring and thought that Adrian Street was really a sissy. But, but man, in retrospect, I wish I had gone to these guys and said, you know what? Um, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you get in the ring with me and just train me a little bit and show me some things and show me a hold or two. You know, I didn't do any of that. I wish that I had had you know, that idea. But anyway, I, I worked with Paul Bosch. You know, I saw a different way of doing television, a different promoter, graduated from law school. You know, Paul Bosch passed away. Um, and then I got a job at the district attorney's office in Brownsville, Texas in 1989. And right across the, you know, Brownsville is right across the border from Matamoros in Tamaulipas. I mean, like... I live 10 minutes from the border, literally, as we say, wow. 10 minutes from the border. So in um, 1989, when I moved to Brownsville, I started going to Lucha Libre over in Mexico, and I met some wrestlers over there. And I started training Lucha Libre at that time. And so I started wrestling myself in Mexico under a mask in some of the border towns. So hold on. So you had no wrestling experience, really. And then you went and learned Lucha Libre. I learned Lucha Libre. <laughs> you know, that's wild. I remember one day we had a guy whenever we were getting trained and he came in and he was teaching Lucha Libre. And all it took was for one meet, one day for me to realize can't do it. <laughs> so I think that's an awesome story that you learned that. It's all rolling. It's all somersaults. It's all rolling. And the reason they, they have a style... The reason the Lucha Libre style is like that, they roll, is because the rings in Mexico are so hard. You would They're like concrete. They've got no freaking give. They're like boxing rings. So you no. take a body slam in a Mexican ring. It's like getting body slammed on a cement floor. <laughs> so you've got to learn how to roll and do a somersault, and that's why they do stuff like that. Um but yeah, I started, I learned, uh, I learned, I wanted to learn um, every aspect of the business. And so I worked in the wrestling office. I was so fortunate that I learned how to commentate alongside the great Gordon Soley, who, in my opinion, with all due respect to Jim Ross, who is one of my best friends and I love him to death. 
but he knows because we've talked about it. You know, I consider Gordon Soley the number one wrestling announcer, you know, ever in the history of the business. And Jim Ross is number two, a close number two. But, um, you know, I got to learn to commentate. You know, I got to learn to ring announce. I got to learn how to referee. I promoted. I learned how to produce my own wrestling show. So for several years here in Brownsville, I produced a weekly TV show, which, you know what, I'm thinking about pulling out some of those old tapes and getting them up on YouTube. That's awesome. So people can watch because I've produced wrestling for about five years here in Brownsville. But I wanted to learn every aspect of the business, which means I wanted to learn how to take a bump and I wanted to learn how to get color and I wanted to learn how to make one whole side of an audience stand up just by a facial expression and manipulate the emotions of the crowd. You know, I remember seeing Abdullah the Butcher when he first came out. And he could turn around with an expression, charge the crowd, and one whole section of the crowd would run away. Hilarious. <laughs> now, the Sheik could do that, too. You know, the original Sheik. He could also do that, too. You know, and... Um, you know, it's funny you bring that up, the whole facial expression thing. Because to me, you, from your body expressions... To, from your body lingo to your facial expressions are two of the most important things in selling anything in wrestling. And, Absolutely. And what you're you're basically touching on wrestling 101 in this whole conversation. And did you foresee yourself becoming a, a promoter on the level that you did? Was all of this preparing you for what you wanted to do? Or were you just getting on every seat on the bus until you found your seat? Um, no, uh, that's an awesome question. Um, the NWA kind of ended up in my lap. I mean, I never thought that I would end up owning, uh, the brand or the promotion or being the NWA president, but I, it kind of fell in my lap and I felt like I had a responsibility. I mean, I didn't have the financial resources that the current owner of the NWA has, but I think in the five years that I had the NWA from 2012 to 2017, you know, I did the best I could with it. I'm proud of what I did to develop the brand. I went to Japan 18 times. Um, so, uh, but, but no, I never anticipated that I would ever become the president of the NWA. I, mean, I think it's interesting to note before we move on. I think it's interesting to note before you had taken over the NWA and you had built that relationship back with Japan, how long had it been before the NWA or how long had it been since they had had a presence in Japan? Because you did. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I it had been a long time. Had it not I really need the to one that built that bridge back. The wrestling experts, the historians that could, but as soon as um, we acquired this brand, um, we approached new Japan pro wrestling and they were anxious to work with us. Tiger Hattori, we met with, as well as, you know, some of the higher executives in New Japan. We flew to Dallas and met with them while they were here in the United States. Um, and they were awesome to work with. What a very professional organization. I'd love to work with them again, you know, at some point. But, um, you know, I don't know how long it was. But, but we went to, J to Japan 18 times. We had some very high-profile matches. Um, I was actually in the very last match that Harley Race was involved in. Oh, wow. It was, uh, yeah, it was what an honor that is for me. It was in the Tokyo Dome. Um, Kojima won the world title from uh, Rob Conway, and uh, Harley Race was there. 
and he actually knocked me out. You know, he he gave me that he gave me that left hand punch. You know, and I took this little bump and rolled out of the ring, and it'll be a memory that I'll never forget. Um, it was probably but, hard not to just lay there smiling, wasn't it? I mean, it was definitely checking off your bucket list. (laughs) You know, you're exactly right. It was awesome. You know, the Tokyo Dome. I mean, I, I never really get nervous when I, when I work because it's, I I just love doing it. You know, you sort of press that button when you go through the curtain and, you know, when you come back through that curtain to the dressing room, you press that button again, you know, but um, when I appeared in the Tokyo Dome, it was close to 40,000 people there. And I have to admit, you know, uh, there were a few butterflies, you know, wow. being in front of that many people, you know, but um, it was an awesome experience. Uh, it was a tremendous experience. And hopefully one day I'll be back in, in, at the Tokyo Dome. I'm, I'm hoping so. Rick, one of the viewers, he had a question for you. He wanted to know, do you have any Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer memories? Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer was from Florida. His real name was Bruce Woyan. And um, he was a legitimate wrestler. He was a, a tough guy. And, um, I mean, he could hurt you if he wanted to. Uh, he had a lot of demons, unfortunately. And that's, you know, unfortunately how he lost his life. But I remember when the Road Warriors first broke in. And they were working with, um, with uh, Buzz Sawyer and his brother. And they came to the Bayfront Center and had this match. And Buzz Sawyer basically beat the crap out of the Road Warriors for real. I mean, it was like he was hitting them hard. And he was telling, you know, he had told people before the match, he goes, they're green. You know, they're green. We have to, you know, fight them. I don't know if he was taking liberties with these guys, but he was, and, and I think he was the assistant booker in Georgia at that time. So maybe they felt like they had to take the punishment, but. He was really stiff with the Road Warriors. I can remember Buzz Sawyer doing that. So there's a That's Buzz. Pretty bold. That's Warriors. pretty bold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the Road Warriors were brand new to the business. You know, they were fresh and they were green. And they were working with the assistant booker in Georgia. So what are you gonna do? Let him hit you. So when you saw him come in that early. Did you think that's going to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest tag teams of all time? No, I can't tell you that I had that vision. No, I just thought they were a unique team. And they, Did were, they had the shoulder pads and everything back then? No, no. They wrestled, I, if I recall, like in cutoff jean shorts, like David, <laughs> Duke, like David Duke shorts or something like that, you know? And they had like leather vests that would take off and, you know, like the village people hat, you know, the leather hat. Thing. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's leather. right. I actually saw one of Joe's pictures, and he was dressed like that. And I just laughed, like, what, what was this? <laughs> yeah, that was early Road Warrior, you know. And they were just, I guess, you know, it was like when superstar Billy Graham um, was, even when he was the champion, he had very short matches. Because he couldn't do a whole lot, you know. He'd, he'd drop the leg drop or he'd do the, the full Nelson or, or whatnot. And the matches were less than 10 minutes, usually. Um, and perhaps Buzz felt like this is how I protect their gimmick. You know, they're new to the business. They're green. You know, they really can't work that well. So, you know, let's just get in there and have a fight, you know, and go out of the ring and a double DQ. And 
but he fought him really stiff, you know? So, you know, that's another part of the business. I mean, I saw a match one time with Terry Funk and Wahoo McDaniel and they were freaking hitting each other, brother. I mean, there's no other way around it. They were freaking hitting each other hard. So, you know that these guys must have had a conversation in the dressing room before the match. You know, especially if you were, you know, the, you've, everybody has seen the, the Vader um, Stan Hansen match in Japan where Vader got his eye knocked out. You know, you know these guys had to have a conversation in the dressing room before the match. Hey, look, you know, um, we're going to have to hit each other. I mean, this is just one of those times where we're going to have to wrestle tight and we're, you know, we've got TV, you know, and this is a big match and we've got to convince the people and they, you know, so, I mean, you've got to, to be in this business, you've got to be tough. You know, I don't want to say that we've lost that because there are a lot of tough guys in this business these days, Shelton Benjamin, you know, and Jack's Dane. And guys like that that are legitimately tough in this business. So I'm not trying to take away from that. But I think it's yeah. more about the process and how it's presented. You know, it just doesn't come across as tough as it used to. Right. Right. So I think said Moth had a good question for you. He said, What was Giant Baba like? And have you ever ate at Ribera Steakhouse? Yes, I have. So <laughs> Yes, I have. In fact, I've got a Ribera jacket that is, you know, one of my prized possessions. You know, I've been told I shouldn't wear it and stuff, but I wear the jacket. It's a great jacket. I mean, I would have to wear it. <laughs> it's a rite of passage. It's, you know, there was a time that I was in Japan one time. I was in Sendai, Japan, and I had been on the New Japan bus all day. Like the bus left Hiroshima, I want to say it nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and you're on the bus all day long and you know they stop to get gas and you know japanese convenience stores are awesome i mean the food in a japanese convenience store are like off the charts some of them actually has the you know a kitchen in there with a chef and they're cooking japanese food what <laughs> tonkatsu and rice and stuff like that and you know soups and things like that so you can have a good meal but I can remember getting to Sendai, Japan one night and um, 1985 and 19, no, excuse me, 1985. No, this had to have been 2015. So I'm in Sendai, Japan. It's snowing. It's freezing cold. And it was so cold that night that when I got into the hotel room, I just went to sleep in my jacket and I wore the rib, the Ribera jacket, you know, <laughs> I just, covered up in my bed and went straight to sleep. I was so tired and I was so cold. But um, yes, I've been to Ribera. Ribera's a, you know, the steaks are not the best. You know, I've had I've had Kobe steak in Kobe, Japan, because that was a bucket list thing for me, because I always wanted to have Kobe steak in Japan. Well, we happened to be wrestling in Kobe, Japan one night, so I told Rob Conway, I'm like, tonight's the night, brother. So he and I went we had Kobe steak. It was it was awesome. I mean, I don't think I'd pay 300 bucks for steak again, but it was good. Um, but the Rivera Steakhouse, you know, you just, just, you know, you don't go there for the steak. You go there for the experience. And there are photos all over the wall and on the ceiling of the most famous wrestlers in the world 
you know, Terry Gordy and Dr. Des Steve Williams and, you know, you know, all the greats that, that went to Japan, their pictures are there and their autographs are on the wall. So You're talking about two tough guys. You just mentioned two really tough guys. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Death and, and Terry Gordy. You know, Stan Hansen, you know, and Bruiser Brody. Talk about two tough guys. The Road Warriors. You know, it's interesting you bring up Bruiser Brody. Jake actually had a question about him. He said, was working with Bruiser Brody tough to do? There were rumors about him not listening to promoters on how the matches were supposed to turn out. Uh, Bruiser Brody, I had a, a, a great opportunity working with him on several occasions. And the story is that, Brody, that, that Bruiser Brody didn't trust wrestling promoters because he always thought they would short him on his payoff. Or something like that, and so well, I, guess, I mean, <laughs> I guess if he felt, I guess if he felt that he had been screwed over by a promoter by shorting him on his payoff, then he would do something, you know, in response, you know, like have a bad match. Like I know that he had one match in Houston one time where he went out there and he just sat down on the match on the mat. He just sat down. What? <laughs> he just sat down with his legs out in front of him and just didn't do anything. And his opponent didn't know what to do. And he just sat there for five or 10 minutes. And it was a, and it was a statement to the promoter that, you know, you're not treating me the way I need to be treated. So, you know, this is how I'm going to get back at you. So he had a reputation for doing things like that. I never saw that in him. And I wasn't a promoter, so I always got along well with Brody. In fact, I remember um, working for the office. There were certain guys that would come into the territory where they would tell me to go to the hotel and pick them up and take them to the town. You know, I guess they would include transportation as part of their guarantee. Abdullah was one of those. You know, Bruiser Brody was one of those. And I can remember going to the hotel and picking up Bruiser Brody at his hotel. And he was doing Hindu squats. You know, in his room, Hindu squats. You know, he was working out. He was in tremendous shape at all times. I can remember um, picking up the Sheik one time, the original Sheik, Eddie Farhat, who came into the territory. And of course, you know, you've all seen pictures of him in the wrestling magazines and stuff, bleeding and, and whatnot. And man, he was a scary guy. In real life, the guy was scary. I mean, I knew he was a worker and I knew it was a work, you know, and all that. But you'd be driving to a town with the guy and he'd be sitting next to you and he'd give you that chic look with all those cuts on his forehead. Scare the hell out of you just sitting next to him in a car. But that's a, a great, you know, memory that I've got of the original chic. He's another one who's no longer with us. But man, all these legends. I mean, I would love to come back on the program with you one of these days and just talk about the legends. Oh, absolutely. You know, since it's the world-class cast, I have to ask any memories or experiences working with the Von Erics. David Von Erich was one of my best friends. Oh, wow. Right before he passed away. You know, he worked in Florida, right? Yes. He and I would travel together. I mean, there are a few stories that, I, that you know, I really can't reveal David and I, you know, we had so much fun, man. We were close <laughs> to the same age, you know, back in the day. And, you know, there were a lot of girls there around the wrestling back in those days. He and I were young, 
It was right before I went to law school. I was 20, 21 years old. We had a great time together. In fact, right before he passed away, he would tell me things like, um, man, don't make me have to take you back to Dallas with me. You know, so had he survived and gone back to Dallas and taken over the office, there's a good chance that, that I would have found myself working in Dallas. But David Von Erich is one of the first guys who, I mean, who really taught me how to drink. <laughs> he would, you know, we would go to Orlando on uh, Sundays, you know, for the Eddie Graham uh, sports complex. And Danny Miller was the agent for the town. I remember Danny. I loved, I loved Danny Miller. He and my father were also close friends, but he was a throwback from the old days, you know, and, um, David Von Erich would swing by my house in his Corvette, and uh, he had two six-packs of beer with him. One for him and one for me. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I want to apologize to everybody out there for, you know, telling a story that might be out of turn or might be a bit unprofessional, but we drank that beer before we got to the wrestling matches. I mean, it would have to be a must, right? You had to keep up with him. <laughs> oh man i mean i've got a story i've got a you know i've got a story of me and david von eric one time i mean being in the wrestling business i mean these guys were men's men you know they would rib each other but with like heavy ribs heavy duty ribs you know like the mabel rib and all that was true but you know in I don't know if you want to call it peer pressure. Okay, I'm I'm trying to defend myself here. I'm just going to go ahead and tell, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and tell the story. So David Von Erich and I are on the way to Orlando one of these days, you know. And he and I are drinking beer, and we're, you know, you know, we're playing music, you know. And he would, you know, he shared with me his love of music and some of his favorite bands and stuff like that, and. You know, Stevie Nicks was one of him. One of oh, one of I his love Stevie Nicks. You love know, he met, he met Stevie Nicks. You know, because when they came to Dallas, of course, the Von Erichs got you know were in the backstage, and so he met Stevie Nicks and told me stories of stuff, you know, things like that. We listened to um, um, uh, gosh, the names you know are, are escape me right now, but. Hank Williams Jr. We used to listen to a lot of Hank Jr. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, crazy songs and stuff like that. So we're going down the highway. We're drinking beer, and up ahead we see this hitchhiker. And David goes, "Spit on him." <laughs> so I rolled down the window. And he kind of like slows down a little bit. He kind of gets over. And I go. Like that. And that gob of spit went right on this hitchhiker. It was a perfect. I, I don't know. How, I mean, it was just one of those things. And the hitchhiker goes. Boom. Like this. You know. Oh, like this. You know. And. We laughed. He and then he, I think David pulled over and the guy started running towards the car. And he, of course, David took off and we laughed our ass off. Oh my God. But you know, 
those are some of the memories that I've got with David Von Erich. I know that's not probably not the story that you want to hear. David no, also was, story was great. David was also one of the greatest wrestlers, man. He was an awesome heel. And he came to Florida to learn how to heal. And Dory Funk Jr. was the booker at that time. And he, you know, formed a tag team with with, uh, Dory. And, you know, he learned how to be a great heel. And he was an awesome, awesome heel, you know. And uh, what a great guy he was. Uh, Carrie and Kevin, not so, I didn't know them quite so well as I knew David. But David and I were very close friends, as you can tell from you know that story. I mean, you don't just drink beer and go down the highway and spit on a hitchhiker with just anybody. <laughs> you know, it was you know just one of those you know rites of passage. I guess you do when you're a kid. I mean, I you know kind of you know halfway sort of regret doing that. You know, but it's a great story, man. And David and I were very close friends, man. He was a good guy, man. I'm telling you right now, I miss him tremendously. You know, and it was a shock. You know, when I found out that he passed away in Japan, but, you know, you know, he's in a better place. He and I had a lot of great conversations and talks. You know, he had a daughter that he lost, you know, as a baby, you know, and that we we talked about things like that, you know, family type stuff. And, you know, we were friends, you know, we weren't just co-workers. We were, we were friends. And, you know, I do miss David very, uh, very much. A lot of people wanted to know this story, and I'm sure it's there's a long and a short version, but how you ended up selling the NWA to Billy Corgan. Sure, you know, um, and, and I will give you guys the short version, you know, because <laughs> I really can't go into, you know, a whole lot of details, but, you know, uh, he contacted me. He made me an offer pretty much that I couldn't refuse. I mean, and I sold it, you know, I love wrestling, man. I love the NWA, but you know, he's, um, you know, he's got some different ideas, you know, he's, um, supposed to be a wrestling genius, you know? So, um, I think that we need to give him the opportunity to show us what he can do. I mean, I'm thankful that they're on TV, very thankful that the NWA is on TV because, um, in my opinion, any wrestling organization that gives the wrestlers a place to work and a place to hone their in-ring skills and their promo skills in front of a television audience, I'm all for, you know. So, you know, um, I'm watching from a distance. I'm in the, their corner, and I hope they do well. You know, I think it's uh, it's a great time to be a wrestling fan. It's a great time to be in wrestling. You know, there's there's so many things going on right now that's changing the landscape of wrestling. And, you know, that I, I think what they're doing is totally different. You know, it's a uh, it, some of it's a it's a throwback. Uh, you know, one thing that it, we've talked about this, too, one thing that, uh, you know, will probably never set well with me is the elimination of the territory system. <laughs> because to me, that just was the NWA. That's that's what the NWA stood for, you know. And uh, how do you feel about the territory system? Because oddly enough, it seems in a sense that wrestling in a lot of ways is reverting back to the territory days. Everything comes full circle. And in a lot of ways, it's signaling towards that. 
we had a lot of great territories back in the day. You know, um, when I when I was uh, working with the organization still, we had a group in Australia. You know, we had a group over in England. We had a bunch of groups in the U.S. from Florida to California and New York and Texas and all points in between, you know. But again, I think that the new owner has his own ideas and he's got the right to do what he thinks is best, you know, and, and, um, you know, you know, we need to give him a chance to, to do with the NWA what he wants. I mean, yeah, the territories are great and there may be an opportunity for them to come back. I'm not sure with the NWA or with another group, but, you know, let's just get back to the TV aspect of it, you know, which I think is just great and awesome. And that's one thing that, you know, I, in retrospect, I wish that I had developed that, you know, I did TV here in Brownsville and, you know, I, I was developing the streaming channel. That's really where I devoted a lot of my energies towards the end. And uh, that may or may not have been a good idea, but, um, you know, in a way it was almost kind of ahead, ahead of its time. I agree, you know, and, you know, um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have my interest in that wrestling library anymore either, but there's a lot of great wrestling on there. And I think that, I mean, I'm into wrestling history. I mean, I'm a fan of old school wrestling. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I do like, but I'll tell you this and I'm going to be, I like the new guys too. And the new style of wrestling has their place. One of the first few guys that I met in Japan were the Young Bucks. Man, I love those guys. You know, not only are they, not only do they have a unique wrestling style, you know, and a unique approach to the business, but they're good guys, man. And I, I enjoyed meeting them. But there are a lot of great wrestling out organizations out there right now doing TV. You know, you still have Ring of Honor, you know, Sinclair Broadcasting, you know, is 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 going strong with ring of honor um impact wrestling is doing tv um with my my friend scott demore you know from canada you know he and i you know had some fun in japan you know he's an executive vp of impact they're on tv the aew you know with chris jericho and cody i mean i think they're doing a great job you know and um maybe we can get maybe when we get together and do another show I, i've got a really great story about dusty that i'll tell you guys too you know um uh yeah, new we definitely gotta do it again this is this has been great you know? yeah my i've enjoyed it i you know i've enjoyed it you, you know what's amazing to me you know you you bought the nwa in 2012 and you think about what the independent landscape looked like back then compared to now you know, because I can think about whenever, you know, like my company back in 2012 compared to now, the independent scene is so much better. The talent is so amazing now. There are so many, even in just Texas alone, there's so many wonderful talents that are just looking for that one chance to be seen by the right people. And they can take it to the next level just like that. It's amazing how much talent's out there. And, and the female talent, too. Absolutely. Like, you know, it's it's such a great time in wrestling because, in my opinion, you know, there's a lot of females now that can go toe to toe with the best men in the business. You know, and to me, is that's a beautiful thing too. Well, I you know, I definitely think that we're experiencing a renaissance 
um, in professional wrestling, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm, can, you know, looking at maybe, you know, doing something in the future in it. But the reason is, I think we have so many people that are tired of the WWE product that are just looking for something different. They're looking for that alternative. And I think that's why, you know, you've got the popularity of so many independent groups out there um, these days. I mean, I don't even call it into indie wrestling anymore. You know, it's just, it's just a different product. And I think that there's a huge, huge market out there. So yeah, I think wrestling's coming back in a, in a great way. And uh, I'd be very excited to be part of it, you know, in the future. Is there anything you want to plug for yourself, Bruce, as we wrap it up here and close off? No, I'd just like to thank the fans, you know, for continuing to come out and support wrestling. I mean, I know it's been difficult during uh, this COVID thing. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, I think the world is getting a bit safer. And I think the crowds are now going to come back. And I think they're going to support wrestling in a big way. So I would just like to say hello to all the fans out there. You know, thank everyone for their support. Let everybody know that, you know, I'm still here, you know, and uh, hopefully I'll be seeing them in the, in the very near future, you know, in some capacity. We actually just had somebody get on and make one last comment. It looks like it's Eric Embry. And he said, hey, Bruce, thanks for being on here. Looking forward to when our paths cross again. So, you know, maybe I'll save this for the, you know, the next time I appear talking about, you know, different personalities. But I remember when Eric Embry first came into Florida, you know, I was a young ring announcer, you know, I was probably 19 or something like that. But um, Johnny Boyd, Jonathan, Lord Jonathan Boyd brought him in and Eric was quite young as well, but they called him Nitro Eric Embry. And he came in like, you know, a keg of dynamite. And, you know, I may be wrong because my memory, you know, at my age now is not, you know, like it used to be. But I seem to remember like in one of his very first matches, I think it was on television. Eric, I think you won the Florida Heavyweight Wrestling Championship and um, was in a, uh, you know, a long angle and a feud with J.J. Dillon, who was booking at that time. And, um yeah, I got some great memories of Eric Embry. So, Eric, hello, man. Thanks for the good words. And I, I do hope that our paths cross in the near future. 